Welcome to Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and I'm delighted today to have a very special guest, Rebecca Weiser. Rebecca has an extraordinary background. She was uh, an Australian diplomat and subsequently became a journalist and uh, an editor in very serious media. And what Rebecca has been doing ever since COVID began has been writing a whole series of pieces in Spectator Australia, which together I think will be a magnificent anthology of the failures of government. And that's why I've suggested the title of the, of the talk today, COVID, Myriad Cock-Ups and Conspiracies. Myriad Cock-Ups and Conspiracies, which was the title of one of Rebecca's pieces in Spectator. So, Rebecca, why do you think that would be an appropriate title for today's interview? Well, I think there's always a, a debate, and I must say, up until COVID, uh, when I had the choice, and I think there is always a choice in trying to understand why things go wrong, the uh, usual uh, motto is to prefer a cock-up over a conspiracy. And that's because a cock-up, uh, everyone knows about human frailties and incompetence. Uh, a conspiracy, on the other hand, normally requires an enormous number or a large number, a significant number of people to act with a great deal of cunning and intelligence and not on the whole to make mistakes. So it usually seems more likely that uh, you can attribute uh, what goes wrong simply to human incompetence than to conspirators. But I think in the case of COVID, what you have is both. And there's very clear evidence that's emerged on uh, both uh, around the world, really, of both cock-ups and conspiracies. Yet when it uh, first emerged, it seemed to be reasonably obvious that uh, it wasn't like some of the other viruses that had struck uh, the world. It was something where we knew who was the most vulnerable and what might happen to them. And uh, the rest of the population seemed to be relatively okay. And that uh, if governments just looked after the vulnerable, that would have been the, the best thing to do. Is that your feeling? Absolutely. And one of the most bizarre things about the last three years has been trying to understand why that sort of common sense approach didn't prevail almost anywhere with the exception of Sweden, where uh, they had an epidemiologist of considerable um, ability and standing in Anders Tegnell, who simply insisted on following that um, pathway, uh, looked at it for a little while, just for almost like 10 minutes or quarter of an hour, like Britain might and Holland might look at that as well. And then they immediately snapped back into line and, and got on board with uh, lockdowns, for example, which always seemed utterly incredible to me, uh, particularly in Australia, where we had virtually no virus at all. 
Um, I remember writing an article saying, you know, it felt like being uh, in a Kafka novel. You couldn't be more surprised if you woke up and found you'd been transformed into a giant insect. Mm -hmm. And in some ways we were these kind of animals, you know, all of a sudden who were being quarantined without any consideration for our rights um, or, or, or the impact that this would have. And yet when Tony Abbott was Minister for Health, he produced a, a plan to deal with this sort of thing, as I understand it, and I had a look at it, and uh, I noticed that uh, that received international praise. Absolutely right, but uh, most countries had um, pandemic plans. I mean, this is a standard procedure. Um, they're not designed for COVID, or they're, they're, they're designed for, you know, if you have a you know, pandemic flu, for example, and none of them ever, ever have involved lockdowns. Uh, we know, for example, that masks aren't effective and particularly not at a population level in um, containing respiratory viruses such as flu or COVID. But we even had, we had the WHO almost immediately acting as if the main form of transmission, trans mission of the virus was via droplets. So everywhere you looked, um, the standard old tried and tested knowledge about viruses and about what to do in response to them was turned on its head or ignored or in the case of the plans torn up. The extraordinary thing to me was that uh, obviously it came from China, from communist China, and uh, it, it seemed that it was more likely to have come from the laboratory than from the wet market. That soon became relatively obvious. And yet uh, knowing this and knowing also how the communist government didn't warn the rest of the world when vast numbers of people were leaving after the new year, they knew they had the virus, they didn't warn the rest of the world or the WHO. Having seen all that, the extraordinary thing to me was that uh, most Western countries then seemed to choose the communist method of dealing with this, that is the lockdown, rather than staying with the normal Western approach. I, I found that a really extraordinary. Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned that it was clear early on, it was clear to Chinese commentators, scientists, writers and others that this virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology or various other labs working on viruses near to the Chinese Center for Disease Control. Uh, it was obvious and it became even more obvious when scientists of the stature, for example, of Luc Montagne, sadly passed away, but uh, who's a Nobel laureate and who looked at it and who said, in about April, I think, of 2020, this virus has been engineered. And he said, look, if you want to put the best construction on it, you might say that it, maybe they were trying to experiment, you know, with something to make, make a vaccine or make something. So, you know, you could try and put a positive slant on that. But he said, there's no doubt that this virus was engineered, and there isn't. And yet to this day, just this week, 
we had in the New York Times an article about how, oh, the virus came from a raccoon dog. <laughs> Who knew? Pangolins, you know, every animal has been put on, in the spotlight. And yet for three years, neither scientists in the West nor in China have been able to find a single shred of evidence that this virus occurred, trans, transitioned from bats to humans via natural means. And yet, and all the evidence, like the virus itself, like the little sequence that makes it transmissible, which is called a furin cleavage site, has been dropped into it, but dropped in in such a way that it couldn't have just happened through um, through natural mutations, because it's had to have, as Luc Montagne said, they had to delicately put a little bit in here, a little bit in here, a little bit in there. And then when you look at in three dimensions, you find that these three bits, the nucleotides that are not next to each other, actually join up. What I found absolutely extraordinary was the role of Dr. Fauci in all this, the man who was lecturing us, sometimes changing his instructions to us about masks or not masks or a number of masks and about lockdowns and so on. But his early involvement, about which I, I think uh, they say in America that he lied to Congress about that involvement. Well, what, is your, what is your feeling about Dr. Fauci's role in all of this? Uh I mean, when you talk about a conspiracy, Dr. Fauci really appears to be at the center of it. Uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust, you know, decide, oh, well, I think it's Dr. Farrar says, oh, well, we have to have a meeting. You know, people are starting to say that this virus came from a lab, you know, and all the science or the small group of scientists they bring together all say, well, on balance, I don't know, I'm 50-50, I'm 60-40, but they can all see the engineered features of this virus. It was very hard to explain how that could have happened other than in a laboratory. Nature does not work that way. And yet here was Dr. Fauci commissioning them to write, a, write a, an article for one of the most prestigious journals, Nature, and to say, oh, it's almost impossible, oh, it's almost inconceivable for that this could have come from a lab. And you know, they didn't say it is impossible. When I looked at that article way back in March or April of 2020, it was quite clear they didn't say, they said, oh, if you were going to engineer a virus, you wouldn't have done it like this. Well. You could have. Who's to say? How do they know what was in the minds of the people who, obvious, what was obvious was that someone had engineered it? Well, you need only go through your articles in Spectator to pick up all of these things because you've dealt with them all. It's the, the biggest anthology, the most complete anthology, at least in Australia, of the development of the virus and the development of knowledge about the virus so that I, th I would hope that if there were to be a Royal Commission, which I hope there will be because I think we desperately need one, a proper Royal Commission, uh, that uh, your, your material should be placed before the Commission because it would be an excellent way in which they could inform themselves as to what has happened. Now, now in relation to Dr. Fauci, 
he was he was doing something, was he not, that Obama, President Obama, said you couldn't do in the United States. Is, is that not right? That's absolutely correct. So so-called gain-of-function research, that is research where you take a, a, a virus or some other uh, um, pathogen and you make it either, either more transmissible and or more deadly. Now, it was quite clear that this was a very dangerous thing to do because there have been there had been lab leaks in in China. There were lab leaks at the time of the first SARS outbreak, um, but there have been lab leaks in the United States, in Britain, everywhere. There have been lab leaks going back, uh, and and leaks of deadly pathogens. You know, decades. So really sitting there with pathogens and making them more deadly and more transmissible seems uh, like an extraordinarily risky thing to do and, and something that shouldn't be done. And uh, to his credit, Obama listened to the scientific uh, advice and said, no, we will outlaw it. Well, that wasn't, Dr. Fauci clearly wasn't going to take no for an answer and started funding via a, a very um, dubious person, uh, in Peter Daszak, uh, 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 an Englishman who was the head of a, a group called the EcoHealth Alliance, and uh, NIAID, the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, started providing grants to Daszak to fund research of coronaviruses, of SARS-like bat coronaviruses in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. And yet, there it was, hiding in plain sight. And at the same time, you had Dr. Fauci, who was providing the funding because he was the head of the NIAID, saying, oh, no, this couldn't possibly have come from a lab. This couldn't have been engineered. Why, he was providing grants to engineer viruses. And he kept on making these, you know, arguments that, oh, no, well, this wasn't gain of function. Oh, no, no, it's ridiculous. And I think that is all coming out now in the United States. Is, is there any evidence that the People's Liberation Army was involved in this and would be thinking of using this virus for military purposes? Oh, the People's Liberation Army, at the time, <clears throat> as far as we can tell, that, uh, and Stephen Mosher, I would recommend to people who are interested in this because he wrote about it very early on and he's a, a great expert on China. Uh, he uh, was the first one to point out that when this uh, as far as we can tell, the lab leak actually occurred. A very senior general in the People's Liberation Army actually came and took over the running of the lab. And there were other clues that there had been a, a breakdown in security at the lab uh, because there was actually um, uh, a memorandum put out by the Chinese government saying you know, people have to be much more careful about the way laboratories that work on, you know, pathogens and so forth are run. So, I mean, the Chinese themselves, the Chinese government were saying this. I reported on that early on. And yet, 
And indeed, very early on, like in about May of 2020, the Chinese themselves said it didn't come from the wet market. It didn't come from the Huanan wet market. You know, it, there is no evidence for that. And yet it was as if, you know, Dr. Fauci would just push on. Oh, no, the most likely thing is that's where it came from. The WHO pursued, uh, I mean, these ridiculous investigations. Where and, and, and who was leading the delegation to investigate? Why, it was our friend Peter Daszak. <laughs> it was farcical, really. But do we, there are some people who wonder whether, given the Maoist uh, view that uh, it didn't matter if the majority of the population of China were destroyed in a nuclear war, provided China won, which is something which Mao Zedong is once attributed with, uh, there are some people who wonder whether the virus may have been deliberately leaked. I assume that there's no evidence of the virus being released in China. Well, I think there's, uh, it, it, we're obviously in the realm of speculation here, mm. but I always, when I look at these things, ask my first question is qui bono? Who benefits? Now, the leak of a virus in Wuhan does not benefit China. It really doesn't. So I don't think that they did it. But who did it benefit? Well, some people became very, very rich as a result of this. And some people were very prepared all of a sudden to develop a vaccine. Uh, I have written about this and, and spe it's obviously speculation. But there were very close links, for example, between uh, companies like Moderna, which had never had any pharmaceutical product on the market and, and had had a lot of money invested on it, in it, but if it wasn't going to deliver something, was going to be in trouble. And uh, the CEO of Moderna, Stéphane Bancel, has gone on television and actually said, well, I've always said a lab leak was possible. <laughs> I've never said it was impossible. And on top of that, Stefan Bansell was actually in his previous work very closely connected with the construction of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He worked for a company, a French company, his French, it was called Biomérieux. And Biomérieux, that was founded in the 19th century, uh, but the uh, head of it is a man called Alain Mérieux, who has very close connection with China, was very influential in talking to the then uh, French uh, president uh, to persuade him, and it was the French who put the money into designing and help designing the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was then, China said, well, we'll build it. <laughs> You're not allowed to build it. So um, there are very close connections between France and between uh, Bancel and Moderna and the construction of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And then Moderna, I mean, Stefan Bancel also told us, I knew in early January, we designed the, the vaccine in two days. And I knew we'd be producing millions of vaccines, you know, and there was going to be a pandemic. I mean, all I can say is it all looks suspicious. <laughs> yes, Operation Warp Speed, which was the the American government's investment, 
who advised the president that uh, this was the right thing to do rather than the normal period you have for developing a vaccine, which takes, I think, up to about 10 years. This was to cut corners and to produce a vaccine speedily. Who, who was the principal advisor to the president on that? Well, I mean, the whole Operation Warp Speed is kind of uh, curious in that uh, people who've looked at it most recently have pointed out that it's actually a military, it was being uh, run by the military and that the vaccines, far from being commercially produced, were actually being commissioned and uh, directed by the Department of Defence. So uh, as to who actually said to the president, this is the way to go, um, I, I mean, look, uh, I, I don't, I mean, obviously uh, Fauci would have been part of it, but I, I, I don't know. It does look like there was a very, it was really, uh, this was seen as a countermeasure. It was a military measure and it was run at a very senior level by the Department of Defence. Yes, uh, and uh, what, uh, what was uh, also interesting, I thought, and I wondered whether it was a coincidence, they only found or they only announced that they had the vaccine until after the election, the mm. presidential election was over. They waited till after that. And strangely, it seemed to be announced immediately they knew that President Trump wasn't going to be re-elected. Is that pure coincidence, do you think? Well, I don't think there was any... I mean, the whole election was shrouded in so much um, extraordinary behaviour that this was, I mean, anybody who watched the election count on the night, the whole thing was extraordinary. I mean, it looked like Trump was winning and then they had to have a pause. <laughs> and all of a sudden they seemed to, you know, all sorts of votes turned up and the, and the election went the other way. I mean, it, it, it was really quite extraordinary. And I was actually just watching um, a documentary that's coming out about Dr. Fauci and, and it shows a clip of him when Biden is being inaugurated and he starts shedding a tear. He's <laughs> so emotional. I mean, he's clearly very close. I mean, he served five presidents, you know, he served um, under Republicans and Democrats, but he's clearly very close to the Democrats and much more sympathetic towards the Democrats. So I think he was you know, he, he doesn't hide the fact that he was, you know, he, he didn't hide, uh, you know, his contempt for Trump and or his, you know, um, relief that Biden was inaugurated. I had to go, it was a delegation to see the, uh, the, the assistant minister for the Republic for Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, but one of the offsiders of the minister asked me what I thought about a royal commission having a royal commission into this. And I said, well, it all depends on whom you appoint. And they laughed. They thought that was amusing. <laughs> but I think if you had a very strong royal commission going across the field, somebody like Ian Callanan and Michael Kirby and, say, Margaret Keneen, for example, if you had a strong royal commission, I think they could find some things out in relation to what happened and warn us as to what we should be doing the next time this happens. Well, uh, one thing that I mentioned in this article about cock-ups and conspiracies is that I think 
Honestly, you know, of course we would all like to know, we, you know, I mean, thank goodness that the Americans seem to be now investigating now that the Republicans have control mm. in the Congress. Yes. Um, but there is a lot that we can do. We don't have to wait for a royal commission. I mean, a lot of this was able to um, happen because there was no scrutiny of what was going on in the parliament. There, were no, there was no scrutiny of, say, for example, health advice. Uh, there was no scrutiny, really, of decisions that were being made. And to this day, the whole way that the Therapeutic Goods Administration is run is completely opaque. So it is very hard for us, concerned citizens, doctors, scientists, uh, people who believe they've been injured to get useful information. So, I mean, I don't, th I think uh, there are some changes that we need to make straight away. And that is things like when health advice, what we saw in Britain was that when Matt Hancock, the then health minister, secretary for health, uh, was advised by his sort of senior vaccine czar, as it were, that, you know, this vaccine should only be given to people who are at risk. He started deriding her in the media as wacky, you know, and, and uh, he should have been forced to table that information. There was also information given to him by the chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, saying that, uh, you know, because a vaccine is given to healthy people, it has to be extremely safe. It has to be shown to be safe before you can risk it, because otherwise the risk benefit, I mean, when you give a, a treatment to somebody who's already dying of cancer, obviously, you know, they're already in such a sick state that, you know, you may be able or prepared to take a risk that you wouldn't when you're perfectly healthy. Mm. And especially in the face of a virus, which is... Witty pointed out was, and as we all know, had an extremely low mortality rate. And the younger and healthier you were, the lower that rate was. It was infinitesimally small for children. And yet somehow we ended up vaccinating healthy children. It's, it's a scandalous thing to have happened, but I don't think it could have happened if honest uh, if the medical advice and the health advice had been tabled, certainly, that, and then if we had been allowed to debate that advice, because it's not always the case. In Sweden, you had a very competent, uh, academically gifted, but a, a very good epidemiologist giving the government good advice. It's not always the case. You don't always get someone who's very good in the public service, and sometimes your most talented people are elsewhere. So we should have been able to have a real scientific debate. And without that, you know, then tyrants can do what they want to do, regardless of, of, of what is best and what is in people's best interest. One of the good things in this state, that's New South Wales, is that we have an upper house and it's not too difficult for smaller parties to get into the upper house. Uh, Mark Latham, for example, and uh, uh, I was speaking to John Ruddock, who's the leader of the uh, Liberal Democrats, and he, he believes in a royal commission, but he says we should also be setting up a parliamentary committee. And when you see how well the House committees are working now in the United States, that could be very useful in getting information about what's happening. But uh, what uh, we found, what I noticed 
during, during COVID in New South Wales and probably happened in other states, the parliament was suspended. It could have met by Zoom, but the Berejiklian government did something which I would thought was completely improper. There's a standing order apparently in relation to the Legislative Council, which requires a minister be present at the time of the meeting of the Legislative Council. So that, for example, such things that the council wants from the government can be attended to, I should imagine, by the minister. I think that's the, the point of it. But when the council met and they were wanting to review some of the things that the government had announced in those daily meetings, uh, the Berejiklian government obviously ordered all ministers not to attend. Uh, and then uh, the point of order was raised by a government member and the president of the council said, well, the council can't meet. So the council was not meeting during this time, although it could have been meeting by Zoom or other electronic methods. I, I found that absolutely appalling. Uh, and, and we saw the most extraordinary things. And I'm sure it happened, was happening all over the place. For example, Every morning there was a meeting where the Minister for Health was there and the Premier was there. And one morning they announced that they were closing down the construction industry. And the Chief Medical Officer said, well, she didn't advise it. We still don't know who advised that. The, the construction industry in New South Wales was closed for, I think, two weeks. It cost close to $2 billion and the government, nobody's ever explained how that happened. I, I find that such, such bad, a bad way of governing uh, a state. Yeah, it's appalling. And of course, um, we saw uh, similar and worse behavior in Victoria. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people in the construction industry, I think one fellow, you know, was driven to um, take his life, you know, they, people were so devastated by these decisions, mm. you know, and they, they were taken seemingly, you know, over, over a virus, which, as we can see in the case, at least in the UK, the health authorities were saying, this is a virus that almost everybody will survive. And mm. yet they treated it as if it were Ebola or smallpox. Or, you know, it, it, it's shocking, but I, I think fundamentally what you need is transparency and scrutiny and debate. These are the bedrocks on which, you know, you can get to the truth of a matter. But if, as you say, and it's, it's a fact that parliament gets shut down, that people, ministers and premiers and prime ministers can say, well, you know, I'm doing this on the basis of the best health advice. And then we find that it flew in the face of the health advice that, that the person got, you know, or it, it clearly wasn't the best health of advice, you know, or the fact that people should be actually allowed to calculate risks and benefits for themselves because we're not all identical. We don't all have the same risk thresholds. You know, the way doctors were censored. I mean, there were so many ways in which debates were shut down. It, it, it's been a disaster. It's been a disaster for our economy, but it's been a disaster. It's been a real blow to our sense of the strength of our institutions and our commitment to a democratic way of life. One of the worst things I thought was when premiers and ministers stop people from returning to Australia to see a dying relative, stop them actually going to see that dying relative. 
and it seemed to be so callous and it seemed to demonstrate and I think I think this was illustrated in the UK when the Telegraph started publishing some of the emails between the Minister for Health and his offsider where they were laughing at what they were doing to people, laughing at them, it seemed to confirm that old saying that uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we had politicians abusing their power grotesquely, particularly in relation to people who were about to leave the world and you weren't allowed to go and see them. Whereas politicians were allowed to travel overseas, but our people weren't allowed to come back. I, I thought the behavior of the political class was absolutely appalling and it brought out the very worst in them, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we saw it's not just Australians not being allowed to return to Australia, but you'd see people not allowed to cross a state border, not allowed to, you know, someone in Canberra, a young woman who wasn't allowed to go to her father's to see her dying father, to go to the funeral. And really, they treated her as if, you know, I mean, Canberra had virtually so little virus, even had the virus been more deadly in every, at every level, you know, but, you know, the politicians who behaved in this way, I guess one of the most disheartening things about it, were being egged on by the media and the public simply, a lot of people had the impression that this was the right thing to do because it was saving lives. And what they didn't realise was actually more lives were being lost by this appalling response, you know. I mean, at every level. Um. Well, it's been, excuse me, it's been absolutely appalling and the politicians have got away with it. They haven't, we haven't really got any reckoning of this. We were promised this, I think, by the, the Albanese government, but uh, they, they had their little <coughs> foolish inquiry into Scott Morrison and the number of portfolios he accumulated together, which was bizarre, but uh, no one really suffered, I don't think, from that. But they haven't gone ahead with, with a royal commission, a real royal commission, because you could, uh, you could put in somebody who, who would just go along with uh, the received opinion. But you really need a strong royal commission onto this and inquiries, as you rightly say. Uh, I, I, it is terrible to think that this could be repeated again. Uh, because uh, we don't know what, what's going to happen, what other diseases are going to come into the world. When I was a, a young a boy, uh, the terrible disease was polio, and it would strike the young and the healthy. We knew with COVID that it was not going to strike the young and healthy. It was going to strike those who were in a poor condition, very elderly, poor health condition and so on, and they should have been the ones looked after. But that obvious thing seemed to have escaped politicians on both sides. It wasn't just one side, it was both sides. This, this seems to be something terribly wrong with the political process. Yes, well, I think that um, this is where you have to look at it and say, why did we get into this? And uh, it's hard to escape the conclusion that the fear was ramped up. <clears throat> 
The fear was ramped up and even when it was clear that most people would survive this, then there was discussion, oh, well, this, that. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, the silver bullet was going to be a vaccine. Oh, we all have to get vaccinated. And once we're all vaccinated, we'll get our lives back. So, <coughs> pardon me, there were um, advertisements on television, you know, about people suddenly being able to travel again. All they had to do was, you know, roll up their sleeve and get their jab and everything would go back to normal. Well, what we saw in Australia, we, very few people were exposed to the virus because we kept, <coughs> as it were, a cordon sanitaire, uh, 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 cut the country off. And that in a way was no bad thing. By the time we were exposed to the virus, we were exposed to Omicron, which is a lot milder. But we'd already had 97.5%, according to the government statistics of people, were vaccinated, had either one, two, three, four, five vaccines. And yet what have we seen? Excess mortality is, is at the highest level since uh, for decades, or since World War II. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. There was this promise first that, oh, well, when we all get vaccinated, that will end the pandemic. Well, clearly it didn't do that. The whole of 2022, the virus ran rife. The vaccination made no difference. And then they said, oh, well, we never said it would stop transmission. Well, actually they did. But leaving that aside, they still say it is the best way to protect yourself from getting sick, from going to hospital, <clears throat> pardon me, from going to ICU or from dying. And yet we've had 20,000 people dying of the virus, most of them in the, in, in the last 12 months, most of them vaccinated. And do you know how we know they were mostly vaccinated? Because not a single one of this vaccine cheer squad jumps up and says, oh, well, all of these people who died were all unvaccinated because they weren't. They were vaccinated. And we saw that for six months. And I've got to give a lot of credit to New South Wales, the one jurisdiction in Australia that published data on who was dying of COVID and whether they were vaccinated or not. And more they were, almost all of them in numerical terms, they were vaccinated. You know, so uh, this, this vaccine didn't work and yet we were, had the fear ramped up and then we were only meant to be allowed to let out of our homes again if we agreed to be vaccinated. The vaccine, well, it, clearly some people have died. The government has set up a scheme to compensate people who died. It's pay for their f coffins and so forth. Uh, but, uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about this extraordinary excess mortality. Why do we have that? And for people to turn around and say, oh, well, because of COVID, well, 97.5% of people got vaccinated so that they wouldn't become sick or die of COVID. So you can't say that this vaccine worked if we've got, when we've got this level of excess mortality. You can't attribute it to COVID. You have to say the vaccine failed and maybe, it seems to me most likely, made things much worse for some people. Now, the elegant and eloquent lady that I'm interviewing, Rebecca Weiser, has written extensively on this question, and you can find all of her pieces in Spectator Australia. And I do hope, uh, Rebecca, that this may be reduced to some sort of anthology in the future. Would that be something you're planning? Uh, 
Yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, I've got, I've got a lot of material there, but I guess um, it's not over yet. You no, know? no. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, and uh, the the we put in a submission, Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, because we were interested in it from a from a constitutional point of view. We put in a submission to the government. And our argument was that there had been two failings in the constitutional system. And we were referring to the constitution writ large, not just the federal constitution, but uh, the idea of the constitution, which Berlinbrook says that assembly of laws, customs and institutions to which the people have agreed to be governed, under which the people have agreed to be governed, as a basic idea of a constitutional system. And we thought that there were two serious failings. Firstly, in relation to regulations, the making of regulations more and more has been taken away from the Executive Council, where there was some formality to it coming in and where you could have something, you could require something, for example, like an explanatory memorandum. More and more ministers under legislation have been given the power to make regulations, subordinate laws. And regulations are really something, they are laws. They're made under Act of Parliament, but they are laws and they also have some solemnity and process and way in which you can check on it. And there should be, I would think in anything serious, there should be an explanatory memorandum with all the reasons for putting that. For example, when they decided to close the, the construction industry, that the case for that should have been made public and explained to the people why it was being done. But the other thing is, which is again is, weakening in Australia, and that is the power of the two houses, particularly the upper house, to disallow a regulation. And this was something which was considered perfectly normal in colonial times when we were self-governing, perfectly normal when the Federation was formed, particularly the upper house could, because governments rarely have the control of the upper house, they could move to disallow something which was obviously something that should never have been adopted as a regulation. But that has been taken away a lot and it should be restored. A, a committee of the federal parliament has talked about restoring that. But I, I, I do think, and I wonder what you think, that we should have a much more rigorous system in relation to serious regulations. They shouldn't be just made by the Premier and the Minister for Health appearing before a compliant, obedient media who just feel their duties just to relay this quickly to the populace. This all should be subject to all sorts of checks and balances, shouldn't it? Absolutely. I, I really, you know, as someone who's worked in journalism now for, gosh, uh, the last um, um, 20 years or so, uh, I, I was very, I think, I feel that one of the biggest um, failures was the failure for a robust debate in the media. I mean, obviously, in The Spectator you did, but, and, and The Spectator does have a, maybe a relatively small subscription, but it does have an influential readership. But uh, in the larger groups, you would normally expect, you know, news corp papers and, uh, you know, the Channel 9 group to, to usually have quite a sort of spirited debate about things. And yet we sort of, everybody sort of seemed to line up and say, oh, well, you know, we couldn't possibly debate this. And, and in the first year of the pandemic, there was a, a bit more debate. But as the vaccine came in, it, it just, 
seemed to be shut down. Nobody would dare to speak up or to criticise. And now I, I think debate is sort of, you know, I mean, I think Sky and um, uh, the papers to some extent are kind of very lately and timidly sort of looking at how unfair these vaccine mandates were, how damaging, looking at vaccine injuries and deaths. But I mean, the vast majority of people have no idea about this. They have no idea because their normal sources of media are simply not telling them anything. And uh, it, it, it's really quite disturbing to see how hard it is. And I think that is actually one of the great values of ADH, um, you know, and of this sort of media that has sprung up. Uh, magazines like The Spectator, Spectator Australia have been the one place that people could go to hear another point of view, to hear evidence that they couldn't hear anywhere else. So, I mean, Thank goodness we're here, but it's a big task. And it, it, I do think it undermines democracy if you can't have a more robust debate in the broad community. You're so absolutely right. And perhaps, and perhaps we could uh, complete on this point because time is catching mm -hmm. up with us. But one of the things that I found completely amazing and unacceptable <laughs> was the way in which if, for example, you mentioned hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, and that, were, that appeared in some of the social media, you were then banned and you were punished for daring to mention this sort of thing. Although, uh, and I think you would agree, there, there is a good argument that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in some jurisdictions seems to have worked. And what is your view about the, the role of the social media in controlling this very narrow big pharma approach to the, the question of uh, dealing with the virus? Well, they played a huge role and they played a role in censoring the what's sometimes called the legacy media, the traditional media, because I know, for example, that Sky News were pressured. They had run a whole lot of interviews, very good interviews with people like Dr. Thomas Barodi, who worked with Nobel laureates, mm. you know, to find the cure for peptic ulcers and, you know, to reveal there was actually caused by the helicopylori bacteria and so forth. Uh, you know, these interviews and snippets were very popular on Sky internationally and nationally. And then YouTube said, we will demonetize you, you know, we'll shut it all down. So they removed them all, you know. So there was this censorship that was coming from big tech and uh, censoring other outlets. So it was really disgraceful because those things, those drugs, you know, which I used, um, I don't know, you know, I'm pretty healthy anyway. Would I have been okay without it? But it gave me confidence to know that there were a whole lot of very reliable papers and studies that were done that showed how ivermectin blocked the spike protein and blocked the receptors to stop it getting into your system. And I, when I got COVID from my triple vaccinated girlfriend who wore two masks, <laughs> just to be careful, but, you know, rang me up and she was devastated and said, I'm really sorry I've caught it. And, and two days later, you know, I had it. It was very, very mild. I was over it. And, but I was taking ivermectin and so forth. And that gave me confidence to think that this bioengineered virus 
I hope, spent the least possible time in my system and I hope I got it out as quickly as I could. Well, on that point, I'm afraid we have <laughs> to conclude the session. Uh, I am absolutely delighted and honoured to be able to thank you, Rebecca Weiser. You are doing a magnificent job there in attending to informing the Australian people about this in Spectator Australia, and it should be widely known and widely available. So once again, thank you very much. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and until next time, thank you. Thank you.